welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 25th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. In today's text, the author of Hebrews proclaims how Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, one that gives us the eternal inheritance that God has promised through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be back. As we get started today, Pastor, talk to us about context, the book of Hebrews, anything in the immediate context as well that'll help us with this part of chapter 9. Oh, this is kind of uh, getting to a, a key portion of Hebrews. We've left behind a lot of the texts uh, that were especially important uh, at the beginning. So we had the portion of Psalm 95, uh, and we've moved uh, to talking not just about Jesus Christ as uh, higher than the angels, not just as Jesus Christ, uh, this unique kind of priest, uh, like out of like Melchizedek, really unparalleled and unprecedented. But now we've moved into the the work of this priest. Uh, so we've talked about uh, uh, the the passage uh, uh, where it talks about putting the mind, uh, the law on people's hearts, uh, that the house of Judah will be cleansed and renewed with a new covenant. Uh, and now we're going to get into kind of the contents of that covenant. We've heard about the the holy place. Uh, we've introduced the temple, and we've introduced Christ as the high priest of the good things that are to come. Now we're going to explain uh, what makes him a unique and uh, a new mediator, uh, and the one that we're going to give all our attention to now. And we're going to do it by way of uh, comparison uh, to the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews is very interesting uh, in the way that it finishes its sentences, I would say. Um, you know, sometimes when people start with the first half of it and they say, on the one hand, this, but on the other hand, and you wouldn't even have to finish the sentence because you can figure it out, it's either exactly the same or it's different. Hebrews kind of does the first half of the sentence and assumes you have finished the second half of that sentence, but it's already moved on to the second half of a different comparison in some ways. <laughs> um, so hopefully we can follow that a little bit. Uh, but but in Latin, they would say, uh, uh, non molto sed magus, not only this, but even more so that. And, and so we're going to see that kind of form of comparison here. So Moses uh, and, and the priests had one way, and it's not even that Christ corresponds exactly to that. So just like they are, so Jesus is too. It's going to be just like they are, so even more and surpassing that and in a more perfect and and on the one hand similar, but on the other hand different way, Jesus Christ is the true priest, is the true mediator, is the true sacrifice, is the true temple, and so on and so forth. Fantastic. Let's uh, jump right into the text and see if we can figure out which part of the sentence he's giving us here. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 15. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is our text for today. That's Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 28. So, Pastor Denzer, we have that, and I'm not going to try the Latin phrase that you said. Not this, but more so. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Help us into that first verse of our text. Sure, uh, maybe going a little bit in reverse, uh, redeem them from the tra- transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, I think this is quite an expansive statement. Um, we might look at the immediate context and see how much of the first covenant is going to be discussed in terms of the blood, the sacrifices, the priest, the various rooms and, and elements of the tabernacle, and then by extension, the temple. Uh, and Really, in the background of all of that is the point Hebrews has made that Jesus is the once and for all, as opposed to the continually imperfect. Uh, so, so the the word that keeps coming up is is perfecting or completing or coming to its point to its end. It's the same word Jesus uses on the cross, famously, for it is finished. Uh, that Jesus is finished, right? He brings everything to completion, um, and the the not least of that is. The reality that the priestly service in the Old Testament was always kind of, it always had this big asterisk on it. The Day of Atonement is a way of dealing with that, that they're given this ritual action by which uh, the temple and kind of all of the remainders uh, are cleaned up for the year, are dealt with. But at the same time, it, it really does beg the question, okay, but how, like that can't go on forever, right? How, how? How does this Day of Atonement get atoned for, right? Who watches the watchers? Uh, uh, something else has to finally come. And if it has to be repeated constantly, 
I mean, particularly you're going to be in a big trouble if, say, your temple gets destroyed and you don't have the Ark of the Covenant and you can't be splashing on any mercy seats anymore. And now what do we do, right? Um, so Christ Jesus is the answer. That's no surprise. So part of the transgressions committed and kind of left un, unbalanced are going to be that. But I think we also can see that his death once and for all, completely, entirely, without any asterisk and without any need for a yearly or weekly or daily repetition, it has it has forgiven, it has atoned for the sins committed against God's law, uh, the sins committed against God himself, which is certainly true for the, the Hebrew people to whom this is addressed, but that also uh, is true as well for us who who did not receive originally the the old covenant through Moses and yet um, uh, know that we stand accountable before the creator of the world as well. But in Christ Jesus, we, uh, just like they, have received grace upon grace. So you said we're going to work our way backward, right? So that was redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Keep, yeah. keep working your way backward. A death, a death has occurred. What's the death? The death is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, and this then accomplishes and delivers the uh, promised eternal inheritance. We can understand this through the Old Testament as certainly the Psalm 95 reference earlier in Hebrews was getting at, right? Uh, there's an indication that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that even the entering in, uh, crossing the Jordan and entering into eternal, uh, entering into the promised land was not this final promise. Uh, you know, it was not entirely complete in that there's something yet greater that is awaiting us, and that is uh, the eternal promised inheritance now that's being referenced here. Uh, and, and and I think working back to the front, we get to two very important words. We'll deal with New Covenant or maybe even New Testament in a moment. But I want to just enjoy this word mediator for a moment. This is such an important word. Here, uh, it's it's talking maybe in the most general way that a mediator is the person who who delivers something. We might almost say like a lawyer, right, who's going to read out the statement and uh, proclaim it, or maybe he's the town herald, right? Hear ye, hear ye, I'm going to read the news for the day. Everybody gather around and listen. Um, so that's the form of a mediator, the messenger, the go-between, the, the bringer of, uh, of a thing that is not his own, maybe, and delivering it to other people. And we're going to talk about Moses in a second, and he's exactly that. He didn't write the commandments. They're not his laws or rules. They're the Lord's, uh, and he's just going to be the go-between. Uh, but the mediator is a, such a delicious term because it's used so many other times in the scriptures to talk about what is incredibly unique about Jesus, that he is the God-man. Uh, so there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Um, he is the the go-between, as it, as Moses also was in a, in a kind of a typological way, as the one who stands in the breach and and is prepared to bear the wrath of God in their place. Um, uh, Moses kind of, I mean, to step up and interpose yourself between God's anger and the people of Israel is, I don't know why Moses did that, especially when he had a great offer. God was going to make a new people out of him alone. Pretty good. But, I mean, he shows his commitment to God's people in calling God back to his own promises and, and pushing those against him. So in that way, he is acting as a mediator. But of course, God doesn't take it out on him. He doesn't wipe out Moses nor does he wipe out Israel. He relents uh, uh, for a time and passes over those transgressions. Uh, but here, in, in the death of Jesus Christ, there's a finality there. 
there's a pouring out of God's anger and punishment on his son, and, and by doing so, offering him as a sacrifice um, to atone, to make atonement, to, to shed the blood that will uh, obtain and attain the forgiveness of sins for us. And this is the sense in which we most often use the word mediator, as in savior, as in rescuer, as in the one who, who bears the punishment in our place. So from that verse, then, it seems he really pays attention to the, the death that's occurred, and that launches him then into this conversation about a will or a testament, I think you said was another way we can think about that. Uh, what's, his, what's his point in bringing up this example of a will or a testament in verses 16 and following? Well, I guess it's pretty clever, right? Um, so, I mean, and, and he's talking about the same sort of will and testament that, that we are somewhat familiar with. Uh, it's written in advance. It's it's a promise that's made. You know, uh, you're going to inherit my farm, uh, and that promise is not going to be true until I'm no longer here. But when I die, the lawyer calls everybody together. Uh, he reads it out, and then the goods that are promised are distributed to the heirs, whoever's named in the will. And it can't be changed afterwards. That's why in the murder mysteries, you know, they have to find the new copy of the will that was hidden away, or oh, this was signed right before the death, right? Uh, and uh, it's important that it is signed before death, otherwise it didn't go into effect. Uh, but it also doesn't go into effect until the person dies, which is maybe why it's part of a murder mystery, right? Um, okay, uh, to, to be more serious, uh, that's exactly his point, right? You need a death. Uh, it's not in force, as in it's not giving out its gifts uh, and its promises to the heirs until that death occurs. And... Uh, and that's going to bring him also into the, the nature of the blood. Why is blood needed, as he's going to say, almost everywhere in the Old Testament? Um, it's because there's no life uh, without—there's no forgiveness without this blood being shed. There's no forgiveness without this death. There can be no delivery of a promise uh, without that shedding of blood. But um, it leads us then to see the salvation— the mediating work of God, this promise of an internal inheritance in the form of a will and testament that Jesus has made. I think it's hard for us maybe uh, not to think about the Lord's Supper. This is an insight Luther draws. I can't help but think out of this passage in Hebrews uh, for his understanding and explanation of what happens at the Last Supper and what is done uh, uh, continually as we receive the Lord's Supper. This New Testament in his blood, right? Go ahead. Well, I was just say talk talk more about that connection with this idea of a will, a testament, how that does inform what we believe and teach about the Lord's Supper. Well, I mean, our Lord on the night when he was betrayed, being of sound body and mind, bequeaths uh, <laughs> to his disciples everything he has, which is uh, himself. He doesn't own any houses. There's no place for the Son of Man to lay his head. Uh, but what he does have is his. Um, uh, his flesh and blood, right, himself, uh, and he is the Lord incarnate. Uh, this is what he promises to them. Uh, it's all made and declared, uh, and it is then uh, accomplished and enacted and put into force when he dies. Uh, and the good news for us is uh, we can't change it, uh, nor should we try to change anything about this institution. Uh, we receive it from him just as he has. Uh, but this then is the form that it takes in our, our services when the Lord's Supper is observed. Uh, it is read out before us. We are, hear, we are hearing it. Not only does it consecrate bread and wine to be his body and blood, 
but it also is read out before us as a promise, as a kind of a listen up, because if your name is in here, um, if you're a sinner, uh, he's giving this out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, That means you're an heir. That means you're a beneficiary of this testament put into force by his death. Mm, I think that's just a beautiful way of describing the Lord's Supper um, and, and recognizing this, the nature of the Lord's Supper as a promise from God to us, uh, bestowing uh, his life, uh, his forgiveness, uh, all of his good benefits uh, by means of his death. Yeah, I think you know, hearing the words of institution during the divine service, as a consecration certainly, not to deny that by any means, but also as the thought of this reading of the last will and testament, and I'm listening for my name, you know, am, am I listed in this last will and testament? That's where the emphasis from the small catechism comes through so clearly, as Martin Luther in, in several places in his explanation says the words for you. That's the yeah. key. That's where your name is listed. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and every Christian is to understand that, uh, to, to indicate them. And uh, and the key there is in the for the forgiveness of sins, right? Are, yeah. are you a sinner? This is this is why these are often the examination questions that a pastor would give maybe at the door, uh, or that each Christian might ask themselves uh, before they go in uh, for the Lord's Supper the next day, uh, that we would recognize just in what way uh, we are named as heirs in this testament, so that when it's read out, it's a joyful occasion. It's it's the time of thanksgiving, uh, and uh, and and then we uh, we go off to the altar to uh, receive the keys to the mansion and and everything else that comes from the Lord, the eternal inheritance promised to us there. Yeah. So, and one one brief clarification then on this matter of the will, because I've I've used this passage too to teach about the the supper. In verse 17, where it says a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So our Lord's resurrection doesn't doesn't mean that that doesn't count, right? Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, I suppose it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp. Uh, those who don't believe in the true presence of the Lord's Supper are usually bound up in questions of how can Jesus be in more than one place? Yeah. Uh, how can he be in heaven and then also here, uh, etc.? Uh, but of course, we see in his resurrection that he is uh, no longer uh, hiding his divine attributes as a man anymore. He's not only occasionally um, walking on water or uh, showing up here and there, or healing people. He is at all times shining forth with his divine glory. He's passing through doors that are locked, unhindered. Uh, he's present and uh, and then immediately present, not only in Emmaus, but also in the upper room. Um, uh, he ascends into heaven and yet is still present with his people. This is, this is a very joyful thing to see. Although, uh, I mean, again, maybe not precisely the point here. We're focusing much more on the New Testament in his blood that is, I mean, salvation, right? Uh, but when we ask the question that maybe Hebrews doesn't directly deal with here, which is how is it distributed to us? I mean, the answer is in his word, right? And 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 then with the supper, it's it, his word declares, here you go. These are some of the benefits is that I am giving you uh, by means of this bread and wine, my very body and blood for your forgiveness. Yeah. Now, as, as he continues then into verse 18, he says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And that takes him into a conversation about, I think this is from Exodus 24 and the the first covenant being inaugurated with blood. Uh, What's what's he doing as he he makes this move and takes us into the Old Testament here? Some people have been troubled, I mean, uh, troubled by this passage because it seems to play kind of fast and loose with the Old Testament. 
you know, which sacrifices are, are rather specifically laid out in the book of Leviticus. And then there's also a sacrifice there on the mount, uh, mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, uh, conducted by Moses. This is really the inauguration of the covenant that he has in mind at first here, uh, where Moses takes the blood, he splashes it on the altar, he has the book of the covenant that he reads in the presence of the people. He even sprinkles that blood on the people, which is kind of a unique thing uh, in the Old Testament, it's it's not quite clear that that happens regularly in the temple as it does on Mount Sinai, uh, which is something somewhat distinct from what is laid out in Leviticus for the Day of Atonement in chapter 9, but also elsewhere uh, for various needs in, uh, say, uh, Leviticus 16, etc. I think what is helpful for us to see is that Mount Sinai is the place where heaven and earth meet in the Old Testament. This is the mountain of the Lord but you see that his glory is present there, that to um, stand in his presence there is to, is to behold, uh, so to speak, the heavenly places, uh, yet even here on earth. And then when the tabernacle is established and goes everywhere, this is really this Mount Sinai moving around. Uh, uh, Sinai is now in the heavenly places, one of the Psalms says, right? Um, so it all seems to be mixed up. Uh, finally, the Lord chooses Zion to be his place, uh, and yet, um, what makes it his place is his presence there to be gracious to his people according to his will and according to his promises. Um, so that's really going to be the point of comparison, by the way, when Hebrews goes back and looks at what Moses did, talks about some of the incompleteness, uh, talks about, um, nevertheless, how the blood is necessary there, and that has implications for eternal life now in Christ Jesus as well. But the focus here is not going to be so much on um, this as a contract, right? This is why uh, I think Lutherans often like the word testament rather than covenant. Uh, the words really do have the same semantic range. It's it's a single word in the Old and New Testament, diatheke in Greek. Um, uh, so it's only in English that we have these kind of two connotations to wrestle with. Um, but, but it certainly is there that a, a, a covenant has this sense of a contract of a two equal parties agreeing on something and and, and kind of it's a one-time binding nature the signing of it's the big deal and then you kind of set it aside unless there's a breach that's not the focus here but it's rather on the the activity of the temple and the tabernacle related to the people in particular um uh, and so i think that's helpful as we look here at moses and at leviticus Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that that's always stood out to me about these verses in particular is just how much blood there is. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, having read Leviticus before this, you you realize just how much blood there is. But the writer of Hebrews really emphasizes that here, the the importance of blood just going on everything. Yeah, we don't we don't. Uh, I mean, uh, Doctor John Kleinig from Australia is is kind of our Leviticus and Hebrews expert. It's great that he did both of these since they're so interrelated. Um, but, I mean, he's the one who's done a good job for us, uh, Greeks, I suppose you could say, of taking that very uh, twisted, if I could put it that way, uh, circular Hebrew, Hebraic book uh, that is by no means laid out in nice, clean rubrics like you and I would like in our hymnals, um, and, and tried to give us a better picture of what does this service look like. And you find out, yeah, it's a slaughterhouse, and it's a it's like a, a Brazilian uh, you know, a barbecue place um, where you have all this meat being smoked up all the time. Uh, uh, you know, it's really a big grill out there, and then there's a big slaughterhouse area, and then there's blood running in the streets, there's blood in the bowls, splashed on things. 
you know, what do some of those horns of the altar look like after having blood put on them over and over and over again, uh, stained? Uh, what do the vestments look like after a single yeah. service? We're worried if we spill a little wine on it. Um, but but what a crazy world it must have been there. Um, and frankly, that's the point Hebrews made. It's like, if you know nothing about the Old Testament, we don't have to go into all the details, but like there's blood everywhere, right? Isn't that what, indeed, under the yeah. law, almost everything's purified by blood here, there. It's as if you can't survive without it. And it's not just as if, that's exactly the point. Without the the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's the conclusion here. Death and blood are needed. This is what is demonstrated and shown to us in the Old Testament uh, sacrifices that are laid out there by God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, um, which then, I mean, then ought to lead us to say, what is being accomplished when God comes in the flesh and he comes to die, to shed his blood? We should see the connection. The forgiveness of sins is what he's accomplishing. Yeah, yeah. And so then wherever he puts his blood today, there is the forgiveness of sins, and that would be a, a marvelous connection to make to the sacrament of the altar again, because that is where his blood is for us today, and so that is where the forgiveness of sins is going to be. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, at least part of this text, or maybe it's it's this text plus a little bit more, shows up on Monday, Thursday, at least one of the years in the three-year lectionary. Hmm. Which it, it seems fitting to me. Absolutely, absolutely. To hear that, to hear that talk about testament, and to hear it connected with uh, the actual sacrifices too, to understand the nature of Jesus' death as a sacrifice, as this blood that is atoning for something. It's it's essential that we see this. Uh, the word, the death of Jesus is. It may be many things to us. It's certainly a beautiful sight to a Christian who knows that it means, in some way, our forgiveness. But particularly it is that sacrifice that is uh, an atonement, a covering up of sin, uh, a washing away of it by means of his divine blood. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to keep looking at the way that this divine blood of Christ forgives our sins. More in this text from Hebrews 9 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Denzer this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 25th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28 with Pastor Sean Denzer. He serves as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. 
Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we were talking about the way that the writer of Hebrews gets to his conclusion in verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There, Then he picks up from with that thought into verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. How does the shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sins, the purifying of, of these things, how do those things relate as we move into verse 23? Very interesting. It, it, it draws on what Moses says in Exodus. Maybe, maybe we should back up just a second, right? Uh, our translation doesn't always come out here about um, that he Moses sprinkled the book and the people with blood. If you look back at Exodus 24, you see he's not really sprinkling the book with blood, but he's reading from the book, and the, the, the book is the, the law of God, the, the word that was received. Um, that we mentioned before the necessity of the Testament being read, uh, the Testament that we have in the Lord's Supper, the New Testament in Christ's blood is this summary that Jesus himself gives, his word on the last day, that I've given and shed uh, my, my body and my blood for your forgiveness. Um, and thus the reading of the scriptures and the words of God surround everything we do in worship, but including uh, the moment uh, when the Lord's Supper is is distributed to everybody. Uh, here, though, um, just very important to see uh, that Moses, as he erects the tabernacle, did not come up with this himself. He received it from God, but he didn't receive it only as a list of specifications in the book, like we have it written in the book in Exodus. He was shown it. It actually says that God shows, he saw these things and God showed it to him, uh, which the author to the Hebrews is picking up on when he says there are copies uh, that what we have on earth, the only thing we've ever seen, the tabernacle, even the temple, this is a copy, a copy of the original thing. And where is that? That's in that's in the heavenly places. Uh, now, people have kind of pondered, what does this mean? If you get up to heaven, is it going to look like the temple? Is there going to be the three rooms, court of the Gentiles, that kind of stuff? Uh, is it going to be a tent? <laughs> is it going to have a lot of purple and blue and red? Hmm. Maybe. Um, I think another way to understand it is simply that the things that are ethereal, that are, uh, you know, invisible, as we confess in the creed, uh, are made visible in these, uh, in what is erected by Moses and what is established by God there in Exodus and Leviticus. Um, but uh, this is not like Plato, uh, where he has kind of the eternal things and, and therefore we have the incomplete but reference to them uh, little things. This is certainly an established ritual practice that God has in the Old Testament of, of everything he established in order to be present with his people in the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, but it is, it is pointing out that God is the one who instituted all of this purification through the blood of goats and calves there. What the blood of goats and calves was insufficient to accomplish once and for all the things that were needed on earth for the forgiveness of sins. That's why the priests have to be doing this all the time. And once a year, a uh, great day of atonement for the whole mess that you know, has had this big asterisk hanging on it the whole time. Mm. The heavenly things also need that, and therefore the kind of blood that will purify them has to be of a, a higher order, uh, uh, you know, fitting to the heavenly things. Well, mm. this is speaking about then the blood of the God-man Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. With this, and I appreciate what you said about the copies. We don't want to understand it in the way that Plato did in his philosophical theory. 
But this this thought of the the copies and that the tabernacle was meant to show something about what it what it means to be in God's presence in a heavenly way. And recognizing that there's no command in the scriptures as to what our church architecture looks like today, at the same time, and, and at the risk of putting the director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a soapbox, is there something to church architecture today that ought to speak to heaven, heavenly realities that are happening in the divine service? I suppose not at all times and in all places. There have been many designs of churches Nevertheless, I think even the notion that we should have a church, I mean, think about the early Christians, they're worshiping, it says, in the temple daily, uh, and also breaking bread in their homes. And then very quickly, they're cast out of the synagogue and the temple both. And what do they do? They continue breaking bread in their homes, it's true. But from all the archaeological evidence, as well as the many churches uh, that we've seen, and, and, and even what has come down through change in time to our own day, is to set aside a place, right? Um, something is marked off and consecrated for this in the same way that the Lord instituted this. Likewise, it's quite traditional in the West um, to have different areas of the church, so to speak. So we have the nave, which is where everybody sits, and we have the chancel, and then uh, usually at the top or perhaps at the center of it, uh, we have an altar. And, and even churches that are kind of in the round, which we do have some evidence of that in the early church as well, often something is significant about that altar in the center. It's maybe raised up in some way or perhaps it's lower uh, to indicate uh, in the opposite way its importance. Thus, I think it's, it's just very easy to see the natural uh, uh, tradition, I guess, that we have built our churches very much like um, the example that we have in the tabernacle. Uh, we don't always have three separate places, the, sure. you know, the general place and the Holy of Holies and the, the most holy place, um, uh, but often that is the way kind of traditional Lutheran churches have been built. Um, it doesn't mean that we're taking up notice the the worship and the liturgy of the Old Testament. Very few goats are sla slaughtered in our right. services each day, for which I'm thankful. I like yes. the barbecue part. But uh, <laughs> uh, in any case, even even our focal point in, in a, every church, I think, whether it's in the center or whether it's at the end of the church uh, in a traditional nave style, it's it's called an altar. Its purpose is quite different. We're not bleeding anything out on it. We're not uh, burning anything up on it. Uh, but it's called an altar because we want to point to something in particular about Christ Jesus, yeah. and that is his sacrifice. So he's, we vest the altar because it's a symbol for Christ, uh, so we vest it because he's the high priest. Uh, but uh, frankly, there's just overlap, right? It's Not only is it a symbol for him, but it's also a symbol for the work that he does. Uh, and that fits quite well with what we're going to see here with his mediating character. He's not only the one who enacts and inaugurates and put into place and delivers the message of God's saving work, but he's also the content, the, the means by which it is accomplished. He's the one who brings not somebody else's blood, but his very own right into the holy place. All right, so let's, let's keep going then in the text to see how that happens. In verse 24 then, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but he's entered instead into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he has entered and he is now appearing. Uh, take us into Christ's work here. 
Sure. Um, I mean, his entry into heaven, where would you want to put that in the book of Hebrews? Maybe we'd place it at the uh, ascension, uh, where it seems he, he, he disappears from our sight. He uh, sits down at the right hand of God. I think that's uh, all fine and good. Uh, but I think it's also speaking about the character of his death in particular, which is a one-time event, as we're about to hear quite pointedly. Um, what is the nature of his death? In John's gospel, it says, Jesus says, I'm going to my Father, and you will see me no more. I mean, they did see him for a lot. I suppose they didn't see him when he was in the temp- when he was in the tomb, uh, but they saw him before and after his death. If they had stuck around by the cross, they'd at least have seen him on the cross dying. And uh, John bears witness to it at the end of his gospel, of course. Uh, but he describes that as going to his father. And I, I think that it's yeah. so important that we see that in what way does he go to his father? It's not just that he's going home or he's going to uh, return to heaven. He's not going to be on earth anymore. It's, it's that his death itself was before the father. It was a sacrifice um, uh, that was to be received by his father. Uh, that was to be a pleasing aroma in his father's nostrils on our behalf, just as the Old Testament sacrifices were. So that's what it means uh, that uh, he has, in fact, um, uh, uh, entered into the holy places, uh, but and now he has continually uh, is in the presence of God on our behalf, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the one-time thing is uh, his his entrance, which I think we ought to just probably summarized by his death, uh, and you can include all the way through the ascension if you'd like it as well. Uh, But now he is in this position in his office of being a mediator, as we said before, uh, where his blood and his accomplishments and his work on our behalf are constantly before the Father, uh, causing him to be propitious to us in Christ. So then as, as the author continues into verse 25, he says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is the author teaching here? I do think it, it, there's so much clarification here um, that is helpful to us. So we see there's a little bit of a distinction made between the offering, uh, particularly that it was a once thing, once and for all, once and done. Uh, it was back then. It, was, it, it had a particular time at the end of the age, a, a powerful phrase. Uh, uh, it, was a, it was his sacrifice and his death. So that's the nature of his death as a sacrifice, not just an accident or uh, uh, you know, old age or something like that, not just a, a murder not even that his life was taken away from him, but that he, as a willing participant, he, uh, in a pleasing action to his father, offered himself in this way, uh, and that it was uh, by means of his suffering and death, right? The cross is what's in view here. Uh, and there's a distinction between that offering and his entering to appear, and, and maybe it doesn't come through so well always in English, but this is ongoing, continuing, right? His appearance is not once and done. His appearance is once and continuing mm. uh, before the Father. With what? With his blood and with his blood's benefits, with, with its effects that are ongoing. And they're ongoing not in the manner of a repet- repetitive, episodic uh, uh, fashion. This is certainly how you see it in the Old Testament sacrifices, whether it's even just the Day of the Atonement once every year, or whether it's you know, the morning and evening sacrifices that have to go down 
before all of your various occasional particular things go on top. Uh, it just, you know, this is a, uh, frankly, the way our divine services sometimes feel to us on this side of glory, as if we're doing the same thing each week. Uh, you know, we have Christmas that comes around every year, so does Easter and Good Friday, and there's a way in which we can treat it as if it's an episode. Helpful then, I think, with the book of Hebrews in mind, as well as what many of the others, what, what Revelation says as well, is really we're just tapping into something that is eternally going on. Maybe we don't always have it consciously before us. Um, but but the Lord is constantly pleased with the sacrifice of Christ Jesus and propitious toward us. And out of his mercy and grace, he is repeatedly over and over again, but not with a minimalistic and come back next week to collect a little more kind of way, but in a full every time and full behind every time, even if it's only once, but especially if it's 25 and more, uh, he is giving his forgiveness and his grace that is constant and continual, his steadfast love it's described as. Mm. And you, you mentioned the, that phrase there, at the end of the ages. Talk a little bit more about the significance of Christ doing us at the end of the ages. That, that brings to my mind, for example, the, the day of the Lord that's often mentioned in the Old Testament, and then the way Peter preaches on, on Pentecost when he picks up that text from Joel and says, in these last days, this is so that, that Christ's death is, it's happened at the end of the ages and maybe is, is the signal that the end of the ages are here. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think this is the way we read Matthew's gospel in particular, when Jesus kind of gives his apocalypse. And on the one hand, it looks like he's talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. On the other hand, it looks like he's talking about his own death. And I mean, what is the connection there? Well, something greater, right? We're not concerned about the copies nearly as much anymore because the thing itself has come, because now the eternal uh, Father's dwelling and his uh, celestial temple is purified. And uh, we're not worried just about being, are we heirs according to the flesh? Uh, can we track ourselves back to Abraham and our particular tribe? But in fact, uh, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, right, are brought into Christ by faith to be inheritors of an eternal promise, as we talked about earlier. Uh, so, yeah, the end of the ages uh, begins, you might say. The end times and the day of the Lord is not a, a 24-hour period as other parts of the Bible are, uh, but this one begins with his death and uh, comes to its end uh, at his return. And actually, we're going to get there in just a moment. That's right. That's right. Now, in that same verse, then, it says that he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This thought of, of once for all uh, seems pretty significant that he's, that he's done this once for all. It's going to be a term that's going to come up again. Uh, talk a little bit more about the significance, the way that that still remains important in our theology and practice as, as Christians. It's been a while since I looked at the word. I don't think it has the force that it kind of sounds like it does, where it's like once and for all time or once and for all people. It's definitely, I mean, the word is hapax, right? Which we, uh, Greek scholars, not, not one, but uh, the New Testament scholars use the word hapax to talk about a, a word that shows up in one place in the Bible and is nowhere else, which is frustrating because you can't compare it with anything else and figure yeah. out the precise meaning, right? So this is a once and you all, once and unique, you might even say, event, um, uh, once and for all, once and not to be repeated in contrast with the sacrifices that are ubiquitous throughout the Old Testament uh, in the temple and the tabernacle. Now, I think there's so much around this that we can fill in the for all 
uh, with all of the other meanings that we want. Is it for all people? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Is it uh, for all time? Well, yes, he's talking about this uh, initiating and, and perpetually delivering the eternal uh, promised inheritance that now he is before the Father uh, appearing in his presence on our behalf. Uh, so for good reason, I suppose, in English at least, we've kind of rolled all those things into one, and we love to use that once and for all phrase uh, to indicate that. But he's put away sin. He's He's done away with it, and done away with it in a way that is better and surpasses the Old Testament sacrifices that cover them over, right? That give God's blessing to the people who had fallen into them, that that does atone for them and take away from them, but it has never been in a in a uniquely once and one and done completed way. Uh, so as with everything else we've seen in the book of Hebrews earlier, right? We're looking for the completion, the bringing it to its end and its fulfillment. That's uh, happened now in the sacrifice of Jesus. And it kind of just, right, uh, the shadow and the and the things to come that's mentioned elsewhere, um, it, it's all brought to a head in Jesus uh, so that, uh, I love this quote, uh, I'll paraphrase it here from Dr. Kleining, but he talks about Christ's death founding and being the foundation of all of the sacrifices in Old Testament times. So how do they work? They work ultimately because Jesus has died. Uh, that's why he is uh, content to be pleased. I mean, the as it says in Hebrews, the blood of goats and calves is not too impressive. The blood of the Son of God uh, is the real means by which even those who were sprinkled with the blood of goats and calves have their forgiveness. Uh, but not only that, it is present now uh, uh, for the mediation of the Father's favor to us at this moment. Uh, this is why the Lord's Supper is a great treasure to us. This is why when the books of the scriptures are read to us. We are receiving the messages of the promised inheritance. Think of all the things that have been said and will be said in Hebrews about uh, faith and gathering together and being delighted to be encouraged by the words of God and unashamed to approach him in prayer. And also uh, the future is secured and founded by Christ's death, uh, that deliverance from death itself for us uh, will be affected and given to us through this and on account of this. Now, as our text comes to a conclusion in verses 27 and 28, the author says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Very So uh, that last part, I think, is what's helpful to see the day of the Lord. How do we understand all of those Old Testament prophecies that do make it sound like one day, and sometimes the things they say sound like judgment in the end of the world, and you'd say that's the second coming of Jesus. Sometimes they sound like he's the suffering servant of Isaiah that seems to be in the back of the mind of the writer of the Hebrews, uh, uh, and that sounds like his first coming. Well, they ought to be connected, in fact even though we can see that they're two distinct days, they have two distinct deeds, events that go on there. One is the death of Jesus to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. The other is the uh, resurrection of the dead uh, in order to deliver the benefits and what that death on the cross accomplished to them. What The phrase that is probably most familiar to us here, though, is this phrase, it is appointed for man to die once, yeah. and after that, the judgment. I think the reason is in the old Lutheran hymnal funeral rite, there was that wonderful collection. It was an address to the congregation, 
but it was actually just a collection of Bible passages about death, about judgment, about the last day, but also about the hope of God in Christ and the certainty of the resurrection. It really is a beautiful thing that has kind of unfortunately fallen out. Uh, but when you find older members who remember it, they these phrases from the Bible pop out at them. And this is the one everyone says, right? Uh, it was used as a missional kind of text once to kind of scare people into it. It's pointing for man to die once. Then the judgments, well, are you ready for it? Honestly, it's not a bad question. It's the way uh, Acts goes as well. Yeah. But uh, so why does he bring this up, the, the reality that you only die once and then there's the judgment of God? That's how it goes for us at least. Well, to everything that's come before, he uses it as a way to say that it's impossible for Christ to need to die multiple times or for him to be perpetually sacrificed and immolated or offered in any sense like that. Uh, no, in fact, the only thing that needs to be perpetual is the bestowing and mediation of his favor to us, which we do have in his word and his sacrament. Um, he's unique and different from the priests with their goats and, and calves. But what follows it then, I think, is, is the reason he introduces this is interesting because here's a distinction between uh, this is definitely one of the places where he starts with one sentence and ends with a totally different comparison, right? So uh, it isn't the case for Christ that he dies. It is the case that he dies once. It's not the case that he dies once and then he faces judgment. It's rather that we all die once and face judgment, but he dies once and Judgment Day is dealt with by him. Judgment Day is, in fact, certain because of that, and, and the judgment is not guilty for the sake of the Son. Uh, so his role in the judgment, you might say, is opposite of ours. He doesn't bear judgment and receive it after his death, but at his return, he comes and he delivers salvation that his death has accomplished and all of its eternal effects to those who believe in him and trust in him. Uh, so, I mean, just like that phrase, by the sacrifice of himself— really sums up so much about what the death of Jesus really is. It's him sacrificing himself in the manner of a priest so that he may present his own blood as the propitiating sacrifice to the Father. Uh, so also, now, uh, he has come, his second coming is clarified for us. The first one was to deal with sin, which is why we summarize his work on the cross as he died for sin, right? For my sins, to atone for it, etc. The second time he comes to save, to deliver the rescue, uh, to take them out of bondage, to, to remove sin and its effects forever, uh, which of course was, in, was that is accomplished by the power of his death and resurrection. But now he's going to deliver to those who are awaiting to see it now. Uh, or as Hebrews says elsewhere, right, that we don't now all see all things in subjection under his feet, uh, but at that day he's going to reveal that and disclose it. Yeah, I mean, this this text, especially reading those last two verses, has a very strong Advent flavor to it, I think, with that that thought of what he did in his first appearance, and, and then waiting for his, his second appearance. And even in the larger context, the way that he does come to us now, the way that he advents in his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, I don't know that this text shows up during the season of Advent in any of our lectionaries, but it, it definitely has that sense to it that it really draws us to, to anticipate, to look for Christ's coming, to, to look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, as the Creed invites us to do, because that is, that is our hope. We know what he's done in his first coming, and so we, we know that when he comes at that, that last day, when, when we are there for judgment, he is there for, 
for saving us, for for rescuing us as we eagerly await for Him. What a what a wonderful message! Uh, help us to to wrap things up. I've got about two minutes here. Maybe just some of that. I, I know we're talking here in October. This is going to air in, in early November. It's getting toward that end of the church year when we roll over into the season of Advent. We're thinking about the coming of Christ. How how does this text help us to anticipate Christ's coming? It does not to steal from the next person, but uh, I mean we go right into. Uh, when when the time was there that he came and the body was prepared for him, right? Behold, you've you've dug years for me, a body you've prepared for me to offer this sacrifice, which is a traditional, frankly, for the Annunciation, uh, uh, talking about the conception of Christ Jesus and his incarnation. Uh, so it's perfect that we would be considering this, that we would have in our minds not only what he has done as some past event, but that we would recognize that it has this ongoing effect because it is so different than the, the way distant for us past events of the perpetual, never-ending, uh, had to be repeated all the time, constantly in doubt sacrifices of the Old Testament. What Christ has done is once and for all time and for all people, um, which then characterizes the way we await his return. That we, we see that uh, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices where you're kind of always just looking for the next day, uh, 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 in Christ, um, we have every hope to live, and yet uh, in the times when we don't see all things in subjection to him, when it seems uh, as if maybe even this great sacrifice has not, uh, has not succeeded. I mean, we, don't, we see the copies, and we see all of the ramifications of sin in this world. We should be very much encouraged uh, to look forward to the return of our Lord, which will not be to deal with sin. Why? Because it has been entirely dealt with. This is what our faith clings to, that it is indeed finished for us. All we are awaiting is that uh, the one who appears constantly before our Father would also appear to us uh, and make it absolutely visible and, and clear to us as well. Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ has shed his blood once for all. He has made firm his will, which has been affected by his death, and now he lives to give that blood shed for you in the sacrament of the altar. And there you have what he has promised, the forgiveness of sins, that you might wait eagerly for him on that last day when he comes to save you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Abel of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 9, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you.